0: The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we sit here this morning, We recognize that even now in the quiet of this room, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. As the seed is sown, there is an enemy that desires desperately to scoop it up. And there's all manner of distraction and temptation and weakness and cares and concerns of the world that threaten to choke it out. so, Father, I pray that as we come to your word this morning, I I pray that you would allow me to only speak that which is right and helpful and true. That you would allow this word to come in power and with the work of the Spirit. That you would allow this people to hear it well, to receive it to believe it, and to be transformed by it. So, Father, help us to fight now. Use the tools and the gifts that you've given us. Help us to fight. Fight to block out the distractions. Fight to mortify our own sin and flesh. Fight to hear your voice. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Return to your feet, please. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're going to be reading this section in chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7 down through verse 13. I remind you that this is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. This was according to the eternal purpose which he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. all God's people said, amen, Amen. you may be seated. So as you surely remember, we are in the middle of a, a bit of a digression here from the Apostle Paul. He had sought out to pray for these saints in Ephesus and then realizing that they may have concern over his imprisonment, they may even have some doubt as to what his imprisonment means about the authenticity of his message and therefore they're standing before God. And so the Apostle Paul goes on this fairly long digression that we've been considering together to make sure that they recognize that while he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus on their behalf, this is not the kind of thing that needs to cause them to lose heart, or to to tremble and, and doubt. He tells them that he's been entrusted with a mystery, a mystery that was not known as it is now in previous generations. And I've labored hard to show you that it was there in shadows and signs And in pictures, but now more fully It had been revealed to his holy Apostles and his Prophets, and that's the nature of a Mystery. A mystery is a secret To be told. It's not a Puzzle to be solved. It's it's Not some insider joke that's only to Be told to a select few But it's a secret that was Otherwise hidden and has now been revealed And is to be openly, as Paul says Here, shared with everyone Paul goes on To just marvel at the reality that he, though he is the very least of the saints, he, though he is the chief of the sinners, he, though he is not worthy to be even called an apostle, that he has received this grace, this efficacious grace by the working of God's power, according to his eternal will, he has not only been called out of darkness and into marvelous light, he's not only been transformed from a hater of Christ and a persecutor of his church and as one of the saints, but. He's been given this role. He's been called in this particular ministry as a minister of the word and a servant of God. He's been charged and equipped with, he calls it a stewardship here. He, he views himself as a manager of somebody else's goods. In fact, he tells us he's a manager of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And when we were last together, we, we thought about really the nature of Paul's ministry. We, we thought about the fact that God had called him and set him apart, but given him a, a specific charge, just as he does with all the saints within the church, that what we see here in the Apostle Paul is, it's unrepeatable. This apostolic ministry, the authority with which he spoke, the inspiration with which he wrote, that's not a thing that God continues to do today. You lay a foundation of a building one time and one time only, and God has already laid the foundation of the church in the apostles and the prophets and we know that Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone of that very foundation, but that there's still something to be said of each of our own ministry here as well. We're moving it we're picking up steam a little bit, we're, we're moving towards chapter four where we're going to read about the fact that Christ Jesus has ascended and, and he he's sent to us gifts in the church in the form of. The apostles and the prophets, but also the the preachers and the teachers and the pastors and the evangelists. He sent these men for the specific charge of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. That the whole body may then be built up, that we may all be mature. And so while we should not look to the working of God and the apostle Paul and the calling of Christ in his life and immediately try to insert ourselves into this story. I think as we see the way that he works with him, we learn something about each of our own ministry and how God is working through us. But what we see about Paul's ministry as an apostle is he's primarily to be a preacher. That's what he says in verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister. Verse 8, he says that this grace was given to him to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul was primarily a preacher. Now, there's two Greek words that can be used for preacher, but the one that's used here is euangelizo, to preach, not just to preach, not just to proclaim, but to proclaim a certain message. Within the word itself is hidden to evangelize, to proclaim the good news, to share the gospel. See, we don't get to pick our own ministry. That's not the way this works. This church belongs to Christ. We're living stones that he has called and he is shaping and chiseling and forming to build this church in exactly the way that he has seen fit. So we don't get to pick our own ministry. That's not the way this thing works. But even within the ministry to which he calls us, we don't get to pick our own message. Paul has been set apart to preach one particular and peculiar message to freely offer to the world the unsearchable riches of Christ. The mystery of Christ, the glories of the gospel. So we came back together. It was two Sundays ago on that evening service. We came back and we considered together what, what are these unsearchable riches of Christ, and and we saw the way that these are these are untraceable. They're immeasurable. I compared it to a rope that you're that you're just you're climbing or you're or you're or you're tracing out, and you can't ever get to the end of it. In the words of. of C.S. Lewis in the Narnia series. It's, it's further up and further in. There's always more there. You never come to the end of it. I shared with you a weird dream that I often have where suddenly I remember there's rooms in the house, rooms in my own house that I haven't yet discovered. And I go in and I find these treasures and I go, I knew the rooms were here. Why haven't I opened this door yet? And that's very much like the Christian life. We know there's always more here to be discovered. He promises. But then then we go away and we get bored and then somebody draws our attention back to something. We go, oh yeah, there's more here. That's the nature of this gospel. That's the nature of the unsearchable riches of Christ. But I remind you when we think about this ministry that Paul has and whenever we consider together the proclamation of the gospel that we've got to remember that the gospel is always about a thing that has been done. It's never about a charge with which we are meant to go and do. And many people, if we're not careful, many well-meaning, good, solid Christians, we can get this twisted. You'll hear there's a phrase that people will often like to banty and throw around these days. They'll say, this particular thing, this is a gospel issue. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's a gospel issue. Beloved, that's the law. That's a thing you can't do. That's the whole reason that the gospel has come. Because you can't love your neighbor as you love yourself. And you can't love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's why Christ Jesus came and did. Because you can't do. The gospel is always done. Never do. Now there's a response to this gospel. There's a response as we look to Christ Jesus and everything that he has done and his unsearchable riches. The response is this. Empty hands of faith. Empty, receiving hands of faith. He had been called to preach the done. Now, there's plenty of do in Paul's writing. There's plenty of imperatives in Paul's writing, and we're moving towards them. And I've got to tell you, I'm starting to get a little excited. As my mind starts to get just a little bit ahead of us, I try to never run too far out front of the headlights, but as my mind starts to get a little bit ahead and I start to think about how differently we are going to respond when we get to the commandments here and we get to the the calls to go and do certain things in the power of Christ, I'm realizing that we have spent all these, how much, over a year now, almost two years maybe, something like this already in the book of Ephesians, God is preparing our hearts to show us you can't do apart from him you can't do apart from what he has accomplished and i'm i have great expectation and anticipation that god is going to do a miraculous work in us as a people when we come to these imperatives having spent all this time considering all that christ jesus has done but that's the job of a pastor that's the job of a preacher that's the job to which the apostle paul had been called to preach the unsearchable riches of christ the done of the gospel therefore he is not pastor as ceo He is not pastor as event planner. He is not pastor as life coach. He is pastor as a proclaimer of the riches of Christ. And if we don't get this right, if you don't get this right as a pastor, as a preacher, as a handler of God's word, what you'll find is that you lead men to incredible despair, holding up before them things they just can't do taking the law of God and putting it up against a wall as if it's a thing that's meant to be climbed to get to Christ and men realize they can't get to the first rung. Or, knowing this frustration, knowing the despair that's settling in on your people, you will water down the law. You'll give the people something they can do. You'll look to people in their flesh and you'll say, this is it. Go and do the things that your flesh can already do and surely this will please God. So we've got to have this set firmly in our minds. Well, the Apostle Paul said, i decided to preach nothing but what? Christ and Him crucified. Wait a minute, you tell us to do a bunch of stuff. Yes, always through the lens that Christ has been crucified and He has risen and me with Him. I'm dead to sin. Why? Because what Christ has done. I'm alive to God. Why? Because of what Christ has done. Sin no longer has dominion in my life. Why? Because what of Christ has done. I'm now alive in the spirit. Why? Because what Christ has done. Always through the lens of Christ and Him crucified. But Paul's not done. See, Paul's nature is never one to just make a statement and let it rest. He, he is so overwhelmed by the glory and the majesty and the... just. Marveling at what God has done in his life. And I pray that you have had some experience of that in your own life. You realize that it's not boasting to boast in Christ. To look at what he has done in your life and to say, <laughs> um, who was it? I want to make sure I'm not telling a story I'm not allowed to tell. I think I can tell this one. Yeah, Leanne Le- 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 Le said that, that somebody came to their house. I can tell a story, right, Amanda? Okay, she's very nervous at this point. I can say this. Leanne said someone came to their, came to their house to attend to um, Ivan, uh, Ivan and Helen. And um, she was visiting with David uh, and, and had mentioned that she was from North Shore. And David said, oh, I've got a friend from North Shore. His name is, his name is Josh Seal. And she said, oh, I, I know him. And she, she said, how do, you, how do you know Josh? And David said, well, he's my pastor. And she said, what? Are you sure we're talking about the same guy? No, I I don't rejoice that I previously lived a life that would make it seem unfathomable to somebody that I am now a pastor. I I don't make light of my previous sins. I don't make light of the people that I have hurt. I don't make light of the fact that it is unimaginable that someone would ever entrust me with the word of God. But I marvel at the fact that God would do a work as he's done in every single one of you. Amen. That's where Paul is. He's worshiping as he's telling this story. And so he piles this exalted language. Just He's just piling it up to show us this is what he has done in me, the chief of the sinners. So that we can, we can see the majesty of what God has done. So he gives us right here in this morning's text, just a further explanation of what this apostolic ministry looks like. He says, to me, though on the very least to the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Now, if you paid attention to the passage that David read, and I hope that you did, we, we select those passages. We don't just we don't have some lectionary that we just pull them out of randomly. We, we select those passages based on where we think the direction of the sermon is going. It's meant to be a, a supplement to, to prime your heart and to prime your mind towards where the message is going. And if you paid attention to the passage he read from 1 Peter, you surely saw that we we're talking, particularly in that last portion about angels peering over the parapets of heaven and looking down to see what God is doing in the church with his saints. Well, we're not going to get to any of that. We'll get to that next week or perhaps the week after. I want to focus here on this, bring to light for everyone. It's what Paul says. That his job isn't just to preach the good news. It isn't just to proclaim the gospel. It's to bring to light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God? Now, if you read from the NIV translation of the Bible, then, then you've got the phrase there to make plain to everyone, and that's a, that's a fine translation, but I think it might cause us to miss the mark. You, you might hear this making the message plain and think that this means something about tailoring the message to the, to the audience. Maybe it's something about watering down or, or rounding off the edges. And this can, this can be very very tempting, right? There can be some portions of the gospel of Jesus Christ that are very offensive. It's promised that that would be the case. Offensive and a, and a stumbling block and a, a rock of offense to the non-believing world. And so we can be very tempted to skim over or to water down things that, that might be offensive to the carnal mind. To take the message and deliver it in a way that the man who's still very much in the flesh, and in opposition to the things of God, might be willing to receive it. But, but the word there is photizo, and you can hear in that word some semblance of the word for light. And so I, I think this is a good translation, to bring to light, to illuminate, to impart light. See, it isn't that the Apostle Paul is monkeying with the message. It isn't that he's tailoring the gospel to the audience that sits in front of him. It's that he's casting light upon it. And what's the purpose to light? The purpose to light is that it allows you to see. That's why I like the King James translation. It says, to make all men see. He's illuminating. He's casting light. He's bringing to light this gospel for a purpose. Not just so that it'll be radiant. Not just so that it'll be glowy but so that men might be able to rightly see. Now, I remind you of what he said in verse two of this same chapter we're in, Ephesians chapter three. He says, I'm sure that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How this mystery was made known to me by the revelation as I've written briefly. And when you read this, when you read what I've written, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. He said, I'm a preacher and I'm a writer about the mystery of Christ. I'm a a minister of the gospel. My job is to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, not as an oratory exercise, but so that you can see it, so that you can perceive it, so that you can grasp it, so that you can understand it, this insight that's been given to me, that that is my job, my job. That's my role. So really, he's talking about the same kind of thing here. When you read it, you can perceive it. When I illuminate it, you can see it. And that really is the nature of faithful preaching and teaching God's word. That's got to always be the aim. The aim of anyone who handles God's word and and disseminates it to others. Proclaiming it either from a pulpit or in a classroom or in your home or as a street preacher. Anyone who handles God's word, their job must be one of illumination. To bring men to a greater understanding, to, to exposing and revealing to them what would otherwise be hidden. You see, there's there's two ditches that we can fall into if we're not careful. If we're not careful, we could turn a worship service like this into nothing more than a pep rally. Where I don't say anything definitive. I just say all the stuff that everybody in this room is guaranteed to agree with. By golly, I say water is wet. Everybody smiles and they walk out. But then the other ditch that we can fall into is one of nothing but intellectual pride. Where I show up in this place and I take the dozens of hours that I've spent in studying God's word. And I just want to show off to you everything that I've learned with little to no concern whether you ever actually see it or grasp it or understand it. It becomes like a book report. It becomes an opportunity for me to assure you people that your pastor did his work this week and I studied and I prayed and I grasped the text. But you walk out of here with no greater illumination, no greater insight, no greater understanding. Now we understand that the Apostle Paul's preaching was often difficult. Peter said so. Many of the things he writes, they're difficult. But this wasn't because Paul was making them difficult. It's because the Content itself is heavy. We're talking about heavenly things. The minute we think we can grasp the fullness of God. In our, in our finite minds, we have surely lost the plot. But again, it isn't that he was trying to make this thing complex or that he was piling over the top language and he was trying to wow people with his intellect. In fact, he says the opposite. He said, I didn't come to you with words of worldly wisdom. I didn't wow you with the size of my brain. He says in Colossians 4 3, at the same time, pray for us. He's saying, You must pray for me in my preaching, pray for me in my teaching. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make clear which is how I ought to speak. I need to make it clear. As the NIV says, I need to make it plain. I need to explain it in the way that they can understand it. This must be the way of a handler of God's Word, a teacher, a preacher, a parent that sits down with their children at the dinner table. Your goal must be to make this Word plain and clear and illuminated for those who are sitting across from you. Otherwise, you've not done your job. Again, it can be very tempting at times to just speak in vague terms, to not make any, any real statements. Listen, there are some things that we've got to hold with very open hands. Hold very very loosely. There's some things that we must have absolute humility on. We're talking about the end times or something like this. Listen, man would be a fool to dig his heels in and say, I promise you I've mastered who the beast is and who the harlot is and what all these numbers mean or anything like this. We've got to hold these things very loosely and with great humility. But there are some things we must plant a flag on. We must dig our heels in. We must make these absolute statements. I remind you that Christianity is one of these propositional statements. It's not just vague ideas. It's not vague messages It can be tailored to whoever the hearer is and whatever he wants to receive on that day. The problem is, when you dig your heels in and make absolute statements, those will offend. Even amongst the saints, oftentimes. These things will offend but the preacher doesn't have the opportunity to do anything else. he got an obligation to bring to light, to explain the things that the Word says as best as we can understand them. Otherwise, what a man will do if he worries about his audience or he's fearful of man, what he'll do is he'll stand up and every single sermon will die a death by a million qualifications. I will hem and I will haul and I will mush mouth and I will vagary it all the way to Nothing. So that nobody walks out of here with any greater illumination. This is this is in part why I'm, I love being a pastor. I wouldn't trade it for anything in all the world. But the one thing that I miss more than anything else is Wednesday night kids zone. Most of you know that for years I spent Wednesday night with Miss Jeanette. With the three-year-olds, the four-year-olds, the five-year-olds, and then... Some of that time I would graduate up and I would teach all the kids the, whatever the scripture was for that week and I would sit with them and let me tell you something, they don't care how many big theological words you can use. And they also won't let you get by with vague statements. They will press you and they will push you and they will ask a million why questions until you realize, I don't think I know anything about the Bible. So I desperately miss that time. I, I, Praise God for Telos and the opportunities I have there on Monday morning. I'd actually be praying every Monday morning. Every Monday morning at 9 o'clock we gather in here for chapel and we sing hymns together. The children are learning how to thumb through the, uh, the hymnals and, and, and find their, their songs and sing. And we recite some words together. We read some scripture. And then I deliver to them a, a sermon. It's a somewhat different style of sermon from the sermon that you get. On this Sunday morning, but I promise you the tone is no different. I promise you the depth of the content is no different. But I recognize that whenever I'm trying to illuminate for a child, sometimes I've got to squat down. Sometimes I've got to move a little slower and point out things that they might otherwise miss. It's not that the message has been changed, not even that the method has been changed. But I recognize that I've not preached. I've not taught if I've not brought illumination. I've not brought understanding. He says that this grace had been given to him to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. This was Paul's plan. This was a thing that he had been set aside to, to bring this light to everyone, to Jew, to Gentile, to woman, to man, to slave, to free, to everyone. He held this gift of Christ It was not his own, not a gift that he had purchased, not a gift that he deserved. It was his job to just go and give it away freely to everyone. In a parallel in Colossians 2.18, it says, him, that is Christ. Christ we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone that we may present everyone. Mature, mature in Christ. He was an everyone kind of guy. He didn't go out in the world and try to figure out who is worthy of this message, who is worthy of these riches, who is capable of receiving them. But freely to everyone, he offered this gift that had been given to him, to everyone. And yet we know that everyone didn't receive it. Everyone didn't walk away with greater illumination. As a matter of fact, most did not. Go ahead and turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians chapter four. It's a passage that many of you are probably already familiar with, and this is your homework for the week to go and read the entirety of that chapter. Ephesians chapter 4, the very first verse. Therefore, having this mystery by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Sound familiar? I'm not going to trick you into believing in Christ Jesus. and I'm not going to tamper with God's word. He says, I've openly delivered this word to everyone. I have shed light. I have illuminated. I have brought it out in a way that anyone with eyes to see can see. I've given my whole life by the power of God to casting light upon this truth. But the reality is that blind men cannot see no matter how radiant the light. Now, we must not miss how this impacts this morning's text. He says that he's been used by God to bring the mystery to light for everyone. What does it say about the natural state of everyone? That they are in the darkness. The natural state is darkness. Why do you flip on a light switch when you walk into a room? Did somebody make the room dark? Darkness isn't a thing. Darkness is the absence of a thing. You come into a room and you flip on the light because the natural state of the room is darkness he's speaking about these Gentile believers and in two ways they're in darkness in, in one way they're in darkness because previously God had allowed them to go their own way previously God had left them in a place where maybe they could grope around in the darkness they didn't have the same illumination as the Jews had and you remember that the Apostle Paul in chapter 2 he talked about what a blessing it was to the Jews he did this by speaking negatively about what the Gentiles had lacked. They didn't have access to the oracles of God. They didn't have the prophets. They didn't have the sacrifices. They didn't have the priests. They didn't have the tabernacle. They didn't have these same witnesses that the Jews had. They didn't have the same illumination. That's why Jesus would say to these, these towns that he had been in, Woe to you, Chorazine and woe to you, Bethsaida. If the things that had been done in you had been done in Tyre or in Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. But because you've had this greater illumination and you've done nothing with it, it will be greater on the day of judgment for them than for you. They had an incredible blessing with this illumination that the Gentiles didn't have. So in that sense, the Gentiles were in darkness, cut off from the things of God. But you can hear, even in Jesus' woe to the people of Israel, you can hear that there was also a darkness that had set upon them. There isn't just darkness with regards to being cut off from the word of God. There's a spiritual darkness, a, a blindness of the eyes of the heart that covers the whole of humanity by nature as fallen man. Think about Ephesians 4, verse 17. We'll come to that sometime down the line. It says, now that I say and testify in the Lord, excuse me, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, for they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They're blind, not just because they don't have access to the word, they're blind because they have hardened hearts. They have hearts that are resistant to the illumination. Hosea you remember the whole story of Hosea as one of a people that are that are hardened and adulterous Even though they've got all the great illumination and all the pictures of the promised Christ to come But you remember that the Lord says to him my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. This is Israel My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge because you've rejected knowledge You're not destroyed because you don't have access to the illumination. You're destroyed because you hate the illumination you're destroyed because you're hardened in your heart, and that's exactly what Christ Jesus said. Everybody reads John 3:16, but they forget to keep going. And they come to 3:19 and it says, "And this is the judgment: The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and he does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. So there's a darkness that comes from lack of access to the light. There's a darkness that comes in the midst of great light because of our own hardness of heart, because we hate the light. We despise the light because by the light, my sins are seen. My evil works are seen. I feel exposed. Why did your mother tell you that nothing good ever happened after midnight? Because men love to move in the darkness. Why didn't Adam and Eve seek to hide not only from God, but from each other? Because we hate the illumination that comes from the light. Man in love with his own sinful ways. Not only in love with his own sinful ways, but going back to 2 Corinthians 4, blinded by the evil one. These two things aren't mutually exclusive and they're in no ways at odds. I want you to think about what Ephesians 2 said. It said that we were following after the prince of the power of the air. By nature, children of wrath. What were we doing? Following the passions of our flesh, the desires of our mind. We follow after the darkness because we love the darkness. We're enslaved to Satan going his direction because we love the way he's going. We hate the light. That there's a perishing people out there. They're not just perishing because they don't have access to the light. They're perishing because they've gouged their own eyes out. Lest they have to look at the light. And every single one of you knows something about this. You sat before people that you desperately love. Maybe people that grew up in a church much like this one. And you have pleaded with them. You have held up the light of Christ before their eyes. You've illuminated it. You have made it plain. You have helped them to see in every way that you are capable. And you beg begged them, just open your eyes and see. Just behold His glory and be transformed. And they wouldn't. They refused. The more brilliant the light, the, the tighter they squeeze their eyes shut. They hated the light. And so, if man's going to receive this, the illumination's going to come, not just in the presentation of the light, but in their receiving of it, then something incredibly powerful must happen. Something that you and I are not capable of doing must happen. That's why, continuing on in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, verse 5 For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake. You hear the tones of Ephesians chapter 3 here. He said these people are spiritually blind. They're blind because they're squeezing their eyes shut. Because they don't want the light that we hold up before them. But I've got nothing else other than this light. This is the only thing that's going to do them any good. This is the only place that freedom and transformation and forgiveness is found. So i got nothing else. I'm compelled by the love of Christ. I'm enslaved by the love of Christ And I so love you that I'm only going to hold up that which can actually save you. Again, there can be this great temptation to hold up before men the kind of things that they'll receive. Okay, fine. You don't want Christ. Well, maybe there's some things that I can use to stair-step you to Christ. Maybe there's some things I can use to woo you to Christ. Maybe there are some things that you don't hate so much that I can present to you and I I can bring them under the banner of Christ. Paul says, no, it's Christ. Christ is what you need. So I'm going to bring Christ before you, trusting that He alone is where life is found. Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Saying this light of Christ Jesus, it can't just shine on your eyes, it must pierce your heart. It must pierce through to the eyes of your heart. This is the work which must happen. Amen. We hold up Christ as the only light. We hold up Christ as the only place where hope and happiness and joy and forgiveness and life can be found. And then we cry out to these people, live. Live. We don't hold up to them more death and cry out to them to live. We don't hold up Christ and then trust in our own ability to cause them to live. We trust in the work of God to bring them to life. Like the sound of God's voice singing out over his creation. I'm not going to linger on it too long because every time I do, I start crying. But I can't help but think back to the, um, the creation narrative in the magician's nephew in Narnia. As Aslan sings creation into being, and you hear this this voice, this beautiful voice, and life is just happening all around us. We stand before men and we pray to God, would you sing over them like this? Would you cause them to live like this? This is in large part why the apostles said to the early church, "We, we cannot give up our job is those who have been called to minister the Word and to prayer. It can't just be ministering the Word. It must be prayer. It must be an utter dependence upon God. Because we have seen the depravity of man. We have recognized the hardness of men's heart. We have recognized their willingness to gouge their own eyes out because of their hatred for the light. And so we can't just illuminate the word and bring it to bear upon them. We must spend time on our knees before God in prayer, asking him to cause these people to live, giving them eyes to see and enlightening the eyes of their heart. Paul is saying we are those who have seen this glory for ourselves, And so we wrestle and we study and we spend hours in the word so that we can make it as clear as possible to the hearers. But we know at every moment, unless God does this miraculous work, there will be no enlightenment. That light will never pierce through to the only place it needs to pierce. And so we don't just pray for the right words. We pray for the powerful working of God. But I want you to look at the very next verse in 2 Corinthians. I hope you had not lost your place. 2 Corinthians 4. You see, what happens is we let the paragraph breaks and we let the headings throw us off if we're not careful. We assume this is like some new thought or maybe even some new correspondence, but it's not the same letter. So verse 7, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. What did the people say about Paul? This is the great Paul. Paul? He's not impressive. Oh, when he writes, he sounds like a big man. When he writes, he sounds like a mighty man of God. And then he shows up in our town and look at this wee little man. He doesn't look like much to us. He doesn't sound like much to us. He didn't come to us with great wisdom or great power. This is the great Paul. He says, yes, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? So it may be clear to all that the power rests in God and not in us. Paul says, God uses saints like me. The least of the saints and the chief of the sinners, he uses those like me. So we realize that the, the, the power of God and the desperate need for the sovereign working of God in order to really illuminate man's hearts, it in no way eliminates God's use of the messenger. It in no way eliminates the responsibility of Paul as the messenger to faithfully proclaim the message. He says, I was given this grace. I was given this grace to proclaim to everyone, to bring light to everyone. That's my job. And woe to me, may I be damned if I ever stop short of this job. May I be curse before God if I ever stop short of this job. I give my life to this job. He doesn't say, well, God's in control. He's going to illuminate the hearts he's going to illuminate. So I guess I'm just going to remain here in Antioch and see what happens. He says, no, my life will be beaten. My body will be beaten and bruised. My life will be one of great suffering and turmoil and hatred. Eventually, I'll lose my head. Eventually, I will be killed for the sake of carrying this gospel. That's why I'm in prison right now, you saints in Ephesus. I'm in prison because the sovereignty of God over the enlightening the eyes of the hearts of men in no way reduces my responsibility before him. The urgency of my message is driven by the fact that I know that God is out there illuminating hearts. That's why God said to him, Acts 26, 16, this is his retelling of the story of his conversion before Agrippa. He says, the Lord said, rise and stand upon your feet for I've appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes. I'm sending you to open their eyes, Paul so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in me. Paul, I'm sending you to open their eyes. Paul, it's your job to open that. Well, which one is it, God? You have to open their eyes or I'm the one opening their eyes? Yes. No, 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 that wasn't the question, God. These are hardened people, a blinded people. and There's work that's got to happen in their heart. And I'm not a heart surgeon like that, God. I'm a flashlight carrier. I'm a pointer outer. I'm illuminating something, but it can only hit their eyes, their physical eyes. It cannot hit the eyes of their heart unless you do the work. So which one is it, God? You go enlighten their eyes. Trusting that I will enlighten their eyes. There's a book that I would recommend to you. It's called, um, it's either called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God or The Sovereignty of God and Evangelism. You remember which one it is? Sovereignty Sovereignty of God and Evangelism by J.I. Packer. Magnificent book, not just with regards to this topic, but with regards to how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are in no way at odds. Wonderful book. Fairly short read as well. But it points to this reality right here. That it isn't that God says, hey, go and shine this light and hope maybe that somewhere over here I might have done something. He said it's by your shining that light that I too am shining light. It's by your proclaiming this word that I'm doing a work and calling men to life and illuminating their hearts and piercing their soul with this word. Peter has this same idea. This isn't unique to Paul. Peter has this same concept in mind. Going back to that chapter that... David referenced earlier, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Who? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the Spirit comes and goes as it wills. It blows. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. You don't control the wind. The Spirit of God must come and bring this new life of man's to be born again. This is the work of God. But then you get down to verse 23 and he says this, you have been born again. Well, yeah, you already told us that, Peter. We've been born again. According to the mercy of God, by the working of God, according to him, he caused us to be born again. Verse 23, you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For the, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word, lest you think he's talking about some other word, what's this word through which you've been called to new life? What's this word through which you've been born again? And this word is the good news that was preached to you. God, use the word that we preach to you to call you to life. God, use the word that we preach to you to bring this new birth. So that you might ask Peter, you might ask Paul, Paul, who causes a man to be born again? God. How does he do this? Through the working of his Holy Spirit. Through something that happened long before you were born, the resurrection of Christ Jesus. New birth comes because he lives. New birth comes because He lived and He died and He lives again and He reigns today. Something that has nothing to do with you because of God the Father and God the Son and because of the coming of the Holy Spirit and calling men to life, applying to men what Christ Jesus has accomplished. Who causes men to born again? Duh, it's God. Is that it? No, we preached a word. Men heard the gospel about Christ Jesus raised and this word pierced their heart. Oh, good. So you have the power to guarantee this new right? No, 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 no. I just told you it's God. Well, then where do you fit in this thing? He told me to go preach. Do you see it? It's it's not I'm just preaching out of obedience. That's what so many men can can fall into the trap of. Look, God's got to cause a new birth. God's got to bring men to light. God's got to illuminate the eyes of their heart. But he told me to do something and so I'm going to do it. That turns evangelism into a fool's errand. Paul is just an idiot then. Paul's just showing God how much he loves God, but he's not actually affecting anything. God says, no, it's through your word. It's through your evangelism. It's through the preaching of the word that I'm calling men to life. That's not just found there. James says it too. Of his own will, he brought us forth. How? By the word of truth. Paul in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation. What does the author of Hebrews says, whoever you believe that is, it's living and active, this word. Sharper than a double-edged sword. This word does surgery. This word cuts you up. This word exposes you. It's a living word. It's an active word. It's, a, it's an abiding word. It's not like the seed of man that withers and fades and falls away. It's a word that does a work. We see how these two things, some way, they will never fully make sense to us in this world. It's through that. That even as Paul preaches and even as Peter preaches and even as James preaches and even as whoever the man in Hebrews is preaches and even as I stand here today and I preach the gospel to you. that for some of you, you're hearing above and beyond and outside the voice of God like a shepherd calling his sheep. Piercing through the the hardness of heart and calling you to life. Immediately working upon your heart through the word of God. Isn't that what he did with Lydia? Acts 16, it says that the Lord opened her heart to hear the words that Paul was speaking. How did she hear them? God opened her heart. Could she have heard the words if he didn't speak them? Well, duh, no. How will they believe if nobody shares the gospel? How will they hear the gospel if nobody preaches? How's the preacher going to go if nobody sends him? And he's done this countless times. You've witnessed it. Somebody that you've shared the gospel with and it was like you were throwing seeds on, grounds of, on, on ground of stone. Like you're beating a head against, your head against a brick wall. There was nothing, there was nothing, there was nothing, there was nothing. And then all of a sudden there was life. And your message didn't change and your methods didn't change. Their mood didn't change. There's a transformation. The work of God. That's the picture, the illumination that must come. And it happens at a time when we least expect it. It happens even as I'm standing here. I promise you, there are more times than not that I stand in this place and I minister God's word and he illuminates me to something that I completely missed during the week. And I'll just tell you, to be quite frank, that's a terrifying feeling because I don't know, is this real? Do I dare say it? That's why sometimes we come back in the evening and I go, hey, I need to tell you this because yeah, this is here. In times when you least expect it, He illuminates the eyes of hearts and you, you see this truth. But the point is that God works through ordinary means. Through the least of the sinners. Excuse me, the least of the saints. The chief of the sinners. He works through these ordinary broken and busted vessels. Through the preaching of order. Something boring like this. 52 Sundays a year. Well... We come back in the evening. So, 104 times a year, us gathering as the body in this place, he's doing miraculous things, supernatural things through ordinary, boring, everyday means. We have no idea the power of his working in times just like this illuminating the eyes of hearts, calling dead men to life, and doing it all not just through the administration of the word, but through the prayers of his saints. And so the prayer isn't just, God, give me the right words to say. It's God giving the right ears to hear. Amen. So we may say with the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the Thessalonians, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. God, make your word come with power. I can rant, I can rave, I can beat my chest, I can tear my robes. I can speak with great eloquence. I can do all of these things, but the power comes from the Spirit of God. He's got to provide the power. So I want to show you very quickly, I want to show you the only other place that "fotizo" is used in Ephesians. Go back to the first chapter, Ephesians chapter one, verse 17. It's there that Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him against the spirit of God. It's got to be the spirit of God coming to do the work. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I've been referencing that. That's the only other place this word is used in Ephesians. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glory and inheritance and the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. He is praying that they may have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Paul's saying I could preach with great eloquence. I could preach with great power. I could preach to you people who love me. Look, here's the reality. Paul had spent more than three years with these people. Those that had been there previously, they knew him. They trusted him. They loved him. They gave him every benefit of the doubt. They heard his words. They believed it, at least intellectually, they believed that they were true. And yet still, even among these saints, how did Paul refer to him at the beginning of the letter? He says that you are the saints in Ephesus. In verse 15, just before this, he says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. These are people that have already had the eyes of their heart enlightened. They have already beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. These are the saints. You get it? He's not praying for dead men to come to life. They're already living. And yet, what does he pray for here? God enlighten the eyes of their heart. Why is he saying that? Is he saying that just as he thinks there might be some non believers there? He's talking to the saints. He's talking to those who have already expressed faith in Christ Jesus and a love towards all the saints. So, what gives? Well, I don't have time to read it for you, but I would, I would commend to you to go through and read the story in Mark chapter 8 of the blind man there in Bethsaida. You remember the story that Jesus came to this man and he spit upon his eyes? And he asked the man, okay, tell me now, what do you see? And that was strange for Jesus. Jesus didn't often ask questions after he performed one of these miracles. He said, tell me, what do you see? And he said, I see men walking like trees. Every, every, like this. And so Jesus touches the man's eyes again and immediately the man's eyes were opened and his sight was fully restored. And this is the only time that I've ever found in Scripture where it took Jesus two tries to heal a man. Was Jesus' power meter just a little bit down that day because he had healed so many previous to this? What What gives? Well, will remind you, that's why we don't read passages of scripture in isolation. We need to read the flow of the story because the way in which Mark and the other gospel writers chose to orient their material, it had purpose, not always chronological. It had purpose and it was meant to show us something. And so what we found was that right before this, after the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000, his, his disciples were arguing about bread. They were worried about where we can get something to eat. And you remember what Jesus said to them then, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet perceive? Are your hearts still this hard? Having eyes, do you not see? And ears, do you not hear? And don't you remember? And then it's right after this when Jesus asks Peter, who do you say I am? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. And Jesus immediately says, yes, the eyes of your heart have been illuminated, not by man, but by God. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but the Father in heaven. That's the only way you could know this. So he's affirming, Peter, you know something from God. Your heart has been illuminated. You've confessed me as the Christ. And then what happens after that? Jesus says, hey, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be persecuted and I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to die. But don't worry, three days later I'm going to rise again. And Peter said, no, 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 that ain't happening. And Jesus looks at Peter who has just made this magnificent statement. And he says, get behind me, Satan, for your eyes are not on the things of God but on the things of man. So you've got these You've got these two bookend stories of his people with hardened hearts, unable to see and unable to perceive. You've got Peter making this magnificent statement of truth, this confession of Jesus as, as the Christ, and still the dude can't see clearly. So it seems clear to me that what's happening here is, with the, the two-touched healing of this blind man, he's making clear, you never outgrow the need for my touch. You never just receive all the illumination you're going to need for the rest of your life in one single moment. Every time you come to my word, you are desperately dependent upon me to enlighten the eyes of your heart. You never vest in light. You never master light. So that every time we come into this place, we are desperately in need of the illuminating work of God. The preacher cannot preach unless there is divine enablement. The hearers cannot hear unless there is supernatural power from God. So that every single time we come in here, as I said earlier, we are engaged in war. Do you ever wonder why it is easy for you to binge on Netflix for hours on end? Why you can sit through every pitch of a ball game? Or you can scroll through Twitter or Fox News or whatever your favorite thing is? for hours on end do you ever wonder why you can sit through a full day or a half day of continuing education at work because your job's on the line but the thought of sitting through a one-hour sermon is torture because it's warfare unless you think i say this for my own purposes because i'm a pastor I remind you that for 15 years, I sat in those pews. 15 plus years, I sat in those pews. And for most of them, I sat on that pew. Do you know why? Because I wasn't very good at war. I got distracted. I got frustrated. I got all manner of attacks came against me. and It became difficult to hear. You must understand that we are desperately in need of the work of God every single time we sit in the teaching of his word. So I plead with you this morning. Pray for your pastor. Pray that God would not allow me to become discouraged or disheartened or lazy or scared. And pray for yourself that the God of the universe would give you a hunger and a thirst for more light. Pray that he would cause you to see and know and believe. And pray for us as a body that we would never ever ever grow bored of these ordinary means of grace that we would recognize the miracle that is happening even now father we praise you we thank you for this word we thank you father that you have enlightened the eyes of our heart not just at the moment of our conversion but time after time after time father you have done this work you've given us eyes to see and ears to hear that we have grown in our understanding. Father, may we never grow bored. May we never grow tired. May we never come to a place where we count this as mundane and lifeless and obligatory. Father, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you in advance for what you will continue to do. We trust that you will do this. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.